Friends, frequent visitors, infrequent visitors, welcome to the National Library of Australia and thank you for joining us for this very special NADOC Week event, whether you are here with us or watching from across the country. I'm Murray-Louise and it's my privilege to be the Director General of the National Library. Uh, as we begin this evening, I would like to invite Tyrone, who's been with us often enough that he knows now how to close the doors now. <laughs> <laughs> Please, to welcome us to your country. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tyron Bell. I'm a descendant of the Ninawal people, and it's my privilege tonight to welcome you to the country of the Ninawal people. To begin with, I would like to let you know that traditional Aboriginal law requires any visitors to the country being made welcome. This customary tradition has been passed on by all our generations. This ritual forms a belief of our belief system. Its purpose is for visitors to acknowledge whose country it is, and then in turn being acknowledged as visitors and made welcome. This welcome custom has happened for thousands of years, and we use it as protection of country against bad spirits. The country in which you stand today is that of the Ninawal people. Being a Ninawal traditional custodian gives me pleasure to invite you onto the country of my people. Dawa Nona, Dawa Nonawal. Yulamundi, Canberra, Kindlin. In the language of my people means this is Ninawal country. Welcome to our meeting place. Enjoy. We call country the mother because as the mother cares for her children, so does the land cares for us. This is why Aboriginal people have such close ties with the land. On behalf of myself and my people, I send a warm welcome to everyone here. I'm proud to be Aboriginal and one of the traditional carers of the land. I want you to feel welcome while on our country. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge those that come to this area for the first time and warmly welcome you. For those that have come here before, and I'm sorry, before, welcome back. And of course, for those that live here, please continue to enjoy. We want you to feel welcome while visiting Unilaw country and ask that you respect the land that we have done for 60,000 years plus. So in keeping with our Ninawal tradition and the true spirit of friendship and reconciliation, treat everyone and everything with dignity and respect. And by doing so, it is our belief that your spirit will be harmonised with your stay on Ninawal country. It is our belief that our ancestors will then in turn bless your stay on our spiritual land. May the spirit of the same remain with you today, tomorrow and always. Once again, on behalf of the Ninawal people, I welcome you to our traditional country. John Yimaba, thank you. I just want to say one thing. Um, I'm very um, proud of what I did uh, last week. Um, I actually worked with our new Governor-General to teach him um, our language. And of course, um, this week when the Governor-General was uh, sworn in, that was the first time ever in Australian history that a Governor-General uh, Governor got up and spoke in um, um, not just Ninawal language, but also in Aboriginal language. And you know that's a really big um, change for us as um, Aboriginal people in that. Um, but also, it it's also breaks down some barriers and all that. And of course, um, yeah, um, you know, I worked two years ago with our ex prime minister. Don't say which one. <laughs> that was with uh, with uh, Malcolm Turnbull for closing the gap speech. But it's all these um, people who are running the country and all that, and uh, for them to. Uh, speak our native tongue is a really big thing and all that and uh, it's all about reconciliation because uh, the Governor-General said to me, you know, I want to make a change and all that 
um, uh, for you as uh, uh, First Nations people. So I'll take my hat off to the Governor General, and hopefully in that, um, you know, um, more things are happening that uh, where we can meet in the middle for reconciliation. So you guys have a good night, and uh, yeah, I'll see you around. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tyrone. We're most grateful for your welcome. And, and just before when we were speaking, we were saying that um, it's easy to despair about things not changing and then you hear of the Governor-General being sworn in and then speaking in language and you think five years ago wouldn't have happened, ten years ago wouldn't have happened. We are really grateful as ever to um, Tyrone for his welcome. Um, and in this International Year of Indigenous Languages, we're really especially grateful for the generosity that Tyrone and others have shown and the trust that they have placed in us um, by sharing their language and knowledge with many here at the library. Um, later this year, we will have a, um, a collections in focus in the Treasures Gallery, which will be focusing on uh, collection items with uh, Ngunnawal language and, and meanings. So next week is NAIDOC week, a time to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the National Library is proud to participate in this event. We're honoured to play a role in preserving the history, culture and achievements and language of Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But preserving makes it sound as if they're past, locked away you know, cared for in cotton wool, and that's not the case. Their living collection materials are around living languages, and we're working hard to make these available in consultation with communities and individuals. We remain very proud many years later of having had a role in fulfilling the recommendations of the National Inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. The inquiry recommended the recording and preservation for future access of the testimonies of Indigenous people affected by removal policies. We are privileged to be custodians of 340 interviews with families and children who experienced separation, as well as those who cared for them, worked in institutions and were involved with administration, policy and implementation in a professional capacity. Thanks to the generosity of interviewees, many of these interviews are available online. This evening, our guests are exploring how Indigenous Australians have campaigned and continue to campaign for their rights and for recognition. Tonight begins with a presentation by Dr Elizabeth Burrows. Elizabeth is a senior lecturer and researcher at Griffith University and a member of the Griffith Centre for Social and Cultural Research. She studied the role of Indigenous print media in the public sphere from 1846 through to contemporary online publications. The library is also very pleased to claim her as one of our own, as an alumni of the National Library's Fellowship Program with her research project, Aboriginal Rights Movement Media from Origin to Online, undertaken in 2018. Please join me in welcoming Dr Elizabeth Burrows to speak about how Indigenous people have been using media to campaign since the earliest days of colonisation. Elizabeth. Thank you. Can 
I begin by thanking the National Library of Australia for inviting me here to speak with you and um, for you all being here to listen to me for this evening. Um, as Marie-Louise said, I'm a media historian and my research is into Indigenous media and um, from both a historic and a contemporary perspective. So I've researched um, Indigenous media going back to the 1800s and I'm currently interviewing Indigenous media producers around the world about how they're using media, why they're using media, what they're trying to achieve, who their audiences are and those sorts of questions. Um, so my work goes from the 1800s right through to today. Um, some of my research relies on the work of, well, all of my research really, relies on the work of Aboriginal writers and media producers. And um, I just want to acknowledge that and to, to publicly say thank you for that work because without them I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Um, I think their work is incredibly important and um, it's not just about what it does on the day that it's produced or the week that it's produced. These, these, the media that they produce have left an indelible history um, that allows us to look back and hear those Aboriginal voices from a couple of hundred years ago, which I think is really so important. Um, so today I'm just going to give you a very, very, very brief insight into four periods of time when Aboriginal media um, was used to campaign. Um, it was used to influence people's attitudes about Aboriginal people, um, to inform their own communities, um, to educate, to resist, to challenge and to entertain. And the media I work with, while they're political tools, they're also community newsletters and community newspapers that keep communities connected um, and they pro provide, as I mentioned, a historic record that's of things that have gone on before, but from an Aboriginal perspective. Um, so I'm going to start my talk in 1836 um, on Flinders Island, which is a, not a small island, it's actually quite a large island off the north coast of Tasmania, or as it was known then, Van Diemen's Land. And this is where the first Aboriginal publication, the Flinders Island Chronicle, was produced from September 1836 to December 1837. And sometimes when I say to people, oh, I study Indigenous media, they go, really? You know? And when I tell them that the first publication was produced in 1836, they're surprised. But to me, it's a very important publication, um, and it really fits in with what we're talking about today, people being able to tell their stories and have a voice. Uh, so when the British arrived in Van Diemen's Land in 1804, there are estimated to have been around three to 4,000 Aboriginal people in Van Diemen's Land. Uh, by 1832, after fierce fighting, only 300 people survived, and only 134 eventually were settled on Flinders Island um, to live under the control of the Aboriginal controller or, or conciliator or protector, George Augustus Robinson. Oops, we're going backwards, we'll go forwards. Um, so this is a picture of um, the church on Flinders Island. Um, Robinson had his own agenda. He wanted to use the Aboriginal people to make a name for himself. Um, he wanted them to adopt, adopt Christianity. He wanted them to give up their own languages, to give up their cultural traditions and laws. And the Flinders Island Chronicle was without a doubt a tool to help him achieve that goal. 
The newspaper was read out loud to the people um, in this church um, when they had lessons. And the church, all that's left now of that settlement is this church, um, a garden with a table, and um, the graveyard. And some people have dismissed this publication as a PR exercise for Robinson. And that's certainly true. It was a PR exercise for him from his perspective. Um, he wanted the newspaper to show people back in Van Diemen's land the success he was having in converting the Aboriginal peoples under his care. However, I always thought that the newspaper had a different story to tell as well. The Flinders Island Chronicle was written by two Aboriginal men, Walter George Arthur and Thomas Brune, or Bruni, depending on where it's written. And I wanted to understand if they had injected their own story into the publication. So I typed up all the publication, every, all the different pages of it, and it took me quite a long time. Um, and then I processed it through some um, software, um, which is called Leximancer, it's qualitative analysis software. And what it does, it looks at the relationships between words and ideas in a document, and then develops, you know, it pulls out the themes and the concepts within that document. And I use that because I wanted to actually create some distance between myself and the document. I knew what I thought I was seeing, but I actually wanted to look at it through, through a different pair of eyes, and so I used this software. So these are the themes that Leximanser pulled out. And they confirm that the newspaper was indeed fulfilling Robinson's goal. So things like under the civilised um, theme, you had things like bad, bed, behave, bread, bullet. And these are all to do with, and then they show that the people were working, that they were playing British sorts of games, they were eating British food, um, they had property, um, they were also being punished when they didn't follow those rules. Um, so it shows that, but it also shows that the commandant was very important within that document. So it was very much about him. Um, but it also showed that um, death and sickness. And this is where I think that you know the people started, the, the writers started to get their story into the document. Um, so it told the readers about the pain and the sadness that the Flinders Island people and community were experiencing. It showed their fear um, and their desire to be allowed to go home. Um, and the existence of the hunting and traditional culture themes showed that some people were resisting Robinson. So they were still going out hunting. They were still using ochre to decorate their skins. And there was actually some research done where, um, this was archeological research, and they excavated what was left of the settlement. And they found that some of the the houses um, had things like pots and games and those sorts of things. But others, they could find the remnants of hunting, they could find the remnants of red ochre and those sorts of things. So it demonstrated quite clearly that some people were saying, no, we're, we're going to hold on to our languages, we're going to hold on to our culture. And this is, um, this is a couple of extracts from the document that show some of the, you know, I'll just give you a moment to read but how sad this document was. Um, but the, the people who were writing it really were trying to get across to those people in Van Diemen's land and their own people 
you know, um, recognition that they were dying and that, you know, they were sick and that things were not great for them. This is a picture of Flinders Island, because I, I was so touched by the document that I wanted to go there and I wanted to actually sense what it must have been like to be there, or at least to, to feel what it was like to be on the island. And this is a little beach that's very close to Waibalina, which is the name of the settlement. And I stood there on that beach, and I, you can't see Tasmania, um, but I really had, you know, it made me think how desolate it must have been. You can see how windy it is. The wind was knocking the tops off the, off the waves. And I tried to imagine what it must have been like for those people to have been taken there against their permission and then not been allowed to go home. And I imagine them standing there looking back at their own country. Um, so in the 1800s, the Flinders Island people um, wrote a newspaper and Walter George Arthur, who was one of the writers of that newspaper, wrote letters on behalf of the community to prominent people around Van Diemen's Land to seek their help. And the Flinders Island community also sent a petition to Queen Victoria. So they were very much using media at the time to try and get their stories out, to get their perspective out, and to try to change minds and to change attitudes and to influence social change. So now hold on to your chairs because we're going to fly forward through time a little way and uh, we're going to whiz through to 1923 in New South Wales. And this was when the first formal Aboriginal rights organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, was formed. And this is a picture of Charles Frederick Maynard, or Fred Maynard, one of the two men who formed the AAPA. And unfortunately, there's no picture of the other man, Thomas Lacey. Uh, but Maynard was a member of the Waterside Workers' Federation, and he'd worked in a range of occupations around New South Wales that had really given him an insight into the terrible conditions his people um, were experiencing at the time. So Maynard and Lacey worked on the um, Woolloomooloo Wharfs. And while they were there, um, they came into contact with an organisation called the Coloured Progressive Association. And this is a photograph of a dinner that that association had. And the man at the back there with the ring around his head, that is Fred um, Maynard. Fred Maynard. Um, and the CPA introduced them, Lacey and Maynard, to the works of um, civil rights worker Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica before moving to the United States, but he wasn't just a civil rights worker. He was also a journalist and an editor, and he really knew how to use media to circulate his message. And so he produced um, a newspaper called The Negro World, um, and this the, through the Coloured Progressive Association, Maynard and Lacey had come into contact with publications like The Negro World, and Lacey had written to Garvey's wife to ask for her to send him copies so he could distribute them to people around New South Wales so they learned about the civil rights movement, and they also, he hoped that it would inspire them to fight for social change and to give them hope, I suppose, for, for social change. And Maynard and Lacey were also very quick learners. And when they founded the AAPA in 1923, a major part of their work was a media campaign. And they enlisted the help of this lady, Elizabeth Mackenzie Hatton. Um, 
They wanted to pressure governments to dismantle the protection system in New South Wales. They wanted Aboriginal communities to be in control of their own missions and reserves, and for Aboriginal families to be granted their own land, and they wanted the forced removal of children from families to be stopped. Maynard and Lacey and the other AAPA members travelled to communities to spread their message and to encourage people to join their movement. Between the 1st of January 1923 and the 30th of December 1930, Han wrote more than 600 letters to newspaper journalists and editors around New South Wales. By August 1925, news coverage shows uh, the AAPA's membership had grown to 500 members and they had 11 branches. And the newspaper coverage they generated also provides an enduring mem uh, memory of their work, the AAPA's work. And also, as Maynard said in the Maitland Daily Mercury on 5th of December 1925, that they believed the work they were doing was to prevent the extinction of their race. So now we're going to whiz forward again to 1982, to the Commonwealth Games. And now we're in Brisbane. And by this time, the Aboriginal rights movement that the AAPA had started uh, back in 1923 had expanded significantly. There was now a network of Aboriginal rights organisations throughout the country. And while they may not have all operated the same, or they may not all have had the same idea about how things should happen, they all believed in one thing. They wanted to improve the rights and the lives of Aboriginal people. In 1982, Aboriginal people in Queensland were still living under the Act, and this meant that their movements were controlled by the state governments, portions of their wages were, could be withheld, um, as could any welfare payments, and their choices in relation to health, care, education and work were all restricted. And the Queensland government knew the Commonwealth Games were coming and was already um, showing it was going to try and ensure that there were no protests during the Games. The government, said, government had already passed legislation that gave the police and security people the powers to stop and search anyone. And people were banned from wearing clothing like T-shirts with political slogans on them. Dr. Ross Watson knew the Commonwealth Games provided an opportunity to raise international awareness of what Aboriginal people in Australia were enduring. He also knew that his people would be in danger if they protested, and he knew they wouldn't get a fair hearing from the mainstream media. Watson was another very savvy media man. He started Murray Radio, 98.9 radio station, and he published a newspaper called Black Nation. And I'm going to let him to explain why he published this newspaper. So listen to him speak on what he was trying to achieve from a, a, a video from the State Library of Queensland State of Emergency Exhibition. I don't know, seen those Commonwealth Games coming to Brisbane and they talked them they're going to call them the Goodwill Games. And gee whiz, the government we had at that time and the police force, the corruption was right through top to bottom. And of course, the, for corruption to be right through and to last that long, it's got to be, the media's got to be complicit, the, the judiciary, law enforcement's got to be complicit and all that sort of stuff. 
So it was right through the whole system. When I saw this goodwill stuff, I thought, no, nah, that's, that's not right. Turn your stomach, you know, to see those, because they'd bring a lot of black countries come, you know. And I thought, no, that's terrible. They're going to bring me and tell them, well, this is a good place. We're all good people and it's a happy place and, and all goodwill. That's the one thing it wasn't. It's not a goodwill place. So, uh, yeah, I sort of set up a little committee, called it a protest committee. And uh, that, well, that went off the rails after a while. I, I, I hadn't been involved in things up till then. I sort of, sort of stood back a bit. My family was all there. But uh, that, those Commonwealth Games had brought me out of, the, out of my comfort zone. And uh, the committee didn't go too good. I sort of left that after, not long after I set it up. And this when I started, uh, I published a newspaper called Black Nation. And I did one about six months before the games and another one about uh, the night before they started and then one just after they finished. I did five altogether between 1982 and 1985, the last one coming out. Yeah, no, the idea when, when it was set up, it, because early in the in 1982, they put out a uh, front page of the weekend newspaper said there was a, a 500 strong black army in North Queensland training to come down and uh, disrupt the games, put blood on the streets and all that sort of stuff. And there was a lot of rot. It turned out that uh, there was one Maori fellow up there, I don't think he was too bright, and a couple of of non-Aboriginal people and uh, they had one broken rifle that didn't work and, and this bloke he was living like a hippie in the bush and he was a, he was a 500 strong army trainer. That, that was the sort of stuff that came out of the government's mouth that the media published on front page and when the truth came out there was no apology to our people for the misinformation or the, uh, their attempts to destroy goodwill, there was no apology or, or even acknowledgement. Uh, just the fact that, that they were wrong. So we, we determined, we sort of worked it out that they wanted to see, they wanted to see violence on the streets uh, because they turned their back on us. And they'd use that to uh, avoid the issues we were talking about. So we made a determination that, that the protests would be peaceful, that, that they, we wouldn't give them the, we wouldn't allow the distraction of, of protesters wrestling with streets, on the streets with, with police. We said, no, that's, that's gonna, the cameras will just focus on that, and that's, that's all they're gonna talk about. We want them to talk about the issues. We want them to talk about that act that's still in force. Uh, people's wages being stolen, kids being taken, uh, no land rights. We want them to talk about that sort of thing. And they're the things that we, that we, we concentrated on. So what's the news Black Nation to attract international attention and to educate people about the act? Um, to challenge mainstream media coverage at the time, and to protect his community and those who were pr protesting against the act. 
He used Black Nation to educate readers about police powers during the games and to encourage people to avoid violence, to keep attention on land rights and getting rid of the act. And this is a photo of one of the ways they did that by just sitting down in front of the police. Um, and despite attempts to keep protests peaceful, over 250 people were arrested during the 1982 Commonwealth Games. So now we're going to whiz forward again to 2013 and the G20 summit in Brisbane. Um, and the legacy of Watson's work and Black Nation has endured. And in the lead up to the 2014 G20, a group of young people in Brisbane, the warriors of Aboriginal resistance, were inspired by his work and produced their own publication called Brisbane Blacks. And it's still going. It's changed names a few times, but it's still going. And while it's an entirely separate publication, the war group acknowledged Watson's inspiration in their publication. And this demonstrates for how the work of people like Maynard and Lacey and Ross Watson have gone on to influence those who followed them in the fight for Aboriginal rights. Dr Watson told me he believed Aboriginal people needed their own media. He said they need, needed and need a platform where our views, our perspectives, where Indigenous perspectives could be expressed. There was no platform for us. We had to rely on the goodwill of the mainstream media. So now we're going to move on to the 2018 Commonwealth Games. And I just want to touch on these protests. In 2018, Aboriginal people again used the Commonwealth Games as a platform through which to gain attention of the world. Rather than using a newspaper this time, though, and picking up on what Mary Louise was saying about change, the media has changed too. And this was an example, really, of how that the media has changed. Because instead of using, they did publish a newspaper, but the, public, the newspaper wasn't the main focus of their communication. They used Facebook. And um, they used Facebook to reach their supporters, um, to document their campaign, um, and they used um, a Facebook page called the Black Media Rising. This is um, the, that, that Facebook page. And the campaigners shared information about the protests. They asked for community assistance. Some of you will remember the thing that went on with Channel 7 with the Sunrise program. And they used um, their Facebook page to say, where are they going to be broadcasting? Um, so to ask for help like that. They used their Facebook page to encourage people to join their protests, to support them using Twitter and so forth. But it also documented events that occurred from an Aboriginal perspective. And they used the Facebook page to document their interactions with the police. And like in their 1982 counterparts, protesters at the 2018 Games were stopped by the police on a regular basis, um, went through pat-down searches, were refused entry to the stadium if they were wearing shirts with political comments on them, such as No Justice, No Games or Stolen Wealth Games. And Picari Ruska recorded co video content of police activity and made a point on camera that the only people from only the, sorry only the people from Camp Freedom had a security or police escort into the stadium. She also called on people to tweet their support for the Camp Freedom people. And these are a couple of the posts. So local police now targeting blackfellas and the Stolen Wealth Games photograph. There were some really great photographs and some interesting videos as well. 
So the Black Rising Facebook page shared information about the Camp Freedom community. It provided an opportunity for two-way communication. They didn't take down people who the posts from people who criticised them. They left them there. So it's a document that shows not just you know Aboriginal people supporting them, but also people who are saying this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this. Um, so it's a record of what was happening and attitudes at the time. Um, but it makes it very clear that people at and from Camp Freedom felt discriminated against and victimised. And it's also a record of their experiences during the 2018 Commonwealth Games protests. So while this is a very short presentation and discussion of how Aboriginal people have used media, I hope I've given you a sense, although I suspect most of you already know, how important Aboriginal media, media produced by Aboriginal people is. Um, it's important at the time of protest because it provides information, support and motivation for supporters. It provides an opportunity for Aboriginal people to speak in their own voice and to tell their own stories and pre present their own perspectives. But after the protests, and this is where I come in, and it's something I worry about now because of social media and new media, in a hundred years when someone like me comes along, is the media that we're producing and putting online or using through social media, is it going to be there as a record, as the Flinders Island Chronicle was? Um, but Aboriginal media also provide a document, a written record of Aboriginal perspectives at that time, what was happening, through Aboriginal voices. So they document Aboriginal voices for change. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And um, unfortunately, social media is really hard to collect. I know. Not impossible, but really hard. So it's. Um, I know you're doing your best. We're doing our best, that's right, but it may not be good enough. So that's, that's the issue. So. Um, so I'd now like to um, introduce our panel uh, for tonight's discussion. So joining Elizabeth, uh, Dr. As I speak your name, can you wave your, your hand up so you know who's the audience know who you are? So um, Dr. Lynette Riley, and next to her, her, her sister, Auntie Diane Riley Macnabo. Um, next to Elizabeth, Shannon Dodson, and. Michael Bell. Uh, doc uh, Dr. Riley is a Wiradjuri and Gamilaroi woman and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. She was one of the founding members of the New South Wales Department of uh, DAT Aboriginal Education Unit, which created the first Aboriginal education policy in 1982, same time as those games going on, and was instrumental in establishing Aboriginal presence in universities. Lynette has a long history working for reconciliation at the local level as chair of the Dubbo Reconciliation Group and state level as state chair for New South Wales Reconciliation. Auntie Diane Riley Macnabo is also a Wiradjuri Gamilaroi elder, a former classroom teacher. She's been instrumental in the teaching of Wiradjuri language in schools across northwestern New South Wales. And uh, many of you all know that this is uh, flourishing. It seems to be a flourishing program that you've got going there. 
Shannon Dodson is the Communications Manager for the Provost Chancellor Office at the University of Technology, Sydney, and an Indigenous Affairs Officer for Media Diversity Australia. She's also an ambassador for Are You OK? and a board member of ANTAR, Australians are, uh, of ANTAR. I have to also just let you know that she is actually in our collection. Um, so an oral history uh, is in the collection. And Michael has joined us tonight from the War Memorial. Michael Bell um, has joined us from the War Memorial where he is Indigenous Liaison Officer and um, uh, interacts quite strongly with our own staff here at the library and among the Commonwealth cultural institutions so that issues of kind of common importance, a, a listening voice, a supportive network can exist for our collective um, mob, I think of them, here in our cultural institutions who do fabulous work. So over to you, speakers, and Elizabeth, I'll leave you to charge through and lead the way. Um, thank you very much uh, for that, that, those kind introductions. Now, I've been um, asked to come along and I'm honoured to get the microphone first in front of these ladies because they're full of knowledge and experience and commitment and dedication to uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues and it's been proven many a time over. You just have to look at their CVs and resumes. So um, I'm, I'm honoured to uh, help the uh, National Library of Australia out tonight and get that talk going. Thank you, first of all, Dr Elizabeth uh, Burrows, for your informative talk. It goes quite a long way back and it's uh, very informative. But what I wanted to talk about tonight, to get the ball rolling, ladies, um, in relation to, because it's NAIDOC and Aunt, you're on the National NAIDOC Committee, Aunt, right, Aunt, Aunt Lynn, mm -hmm. um, you're on the National NAIDOC Committee, how do you think picking the theme and is driving the the um, interest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues across the nation. And also, can you just take us through how the committee actually picks the theme to, to guide us in relation to NAIDOC? Okay. I, I think, firstly, what we try to do is make sure that the theme resonates with what's happening in the wider community at the time and particularly to pick up what are the themes and interests that are really important to us as Aboriginal people. So when we were looking at um, the theme this year, we were looking at the Uluru Statement and what was coming out of that in relation to the non-recognition of Aboriginal people as having a voice nationally and that uh, we were being dismissed in our concerns at a federal level. And for us, that can no longer be allowed to happen. And I do appreciate that a lot of people thought that the NAIDOC committee was just a reflection and should be a voice of the federal government. And we're here to say, no, we're not. <laughs> we're here at, to be the voice of Aboriginal people across Australia. And so the theme this year had to, by necessity, have to be political because we're living in a political climate where they're trying to, again, dismiss and demean who we are as people. And therefore, voice treaty truth is really important that we always remember those key elements and make sure we really think about what it means to us in moving forward as a nation in this country. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think well, I'm on the committee with Aunt as well, but I think also we 
really thought the themes were not just in relation to the Uluru Statement, but also what they mean more generally. So obviously um, voice is a really big thing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, having our voices heard and um, being represented um, not only sort of on a federal uh, parliament level, but on all levels, um, in organisations, uh, in everyday life, in the media. So it, we really wanted the theme to also kind of hit some points around generally um, where the conversation is at. And obviously treaty is a, um, is a really big issue that's been on the agenda for... For the hundreds of years. How long? BC. So yeah. So and I think also the truth um, stuff. Obviously, I think that uh, there is a lot of truth telling that needs to be done. And I don't think that's actually about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people telling our truth because we've been telling our truth for a long time. It's actually about um, the rest of Australia to come to grips with the truth of the history of this country and to start actually talking about what that all means for us today. Thank you. Given, given that response, do you think that NAIDOC and the successful infiltration into mainstream society has become our most successful political campaign ever? <laughs> and given, acknowledging that it goes back to the pen of William Cooper and his representations on behalf of us celebrating our culture and also having equal representation. Can you see that NAIDOC, and do you, would you agree that NAIDOC is a political campaign that has been the most successful? Well, or do you, do you think there are other campaigns that have done a, a better job? I think what's interesting about NAIDOC though is a lot of people don't know that NAIDOC actually started as a protest to Australia Day. So, People don't really, they don't know that history that actually it started as a protest. And then the thought was, let's turn it into more of a celebration. It then turned into a week-long celebration. And, you know, for blackfellas, we'd like it to be a year-long, all-the-time all celebration. But um, I think that it, I think it's been a really successful campaign in terms of being able to get into the psyche of the Australian public. Mm. I mean... Yeah, I mean, in terms of a campaign, I think it's been pretty successful. What do you... Yeah. I, I think that one of the key reasons why it's successful is that it's accepted and adopted throughout a number of different organisations. So all schools celebrate NAIDOC. And if we're going to educate people, that's where we have to start. Uh, and it's just so widely accepted that... Um, I know Diane's been heavily involved in the school sector in running NAIDOC functions. But for me, it's one of those key organised uh, celebrations that's accepted as an educational program as well. And I think that that's where we really have to hit it. Mm. I think when I do NAIDOC, I do NAIDOC from uh, July and sometimes in June all the way to <laughs> December, <laughs> going and supporting all the schools and the communities because they all want the same people to come in and um, talk, but they've got to try to dilly them out a little bit <laughs> so that they all get a little part of those people that have got the knowledge, those knowledge holders that can come in with the dance and the song um, and talk about the weaving and the ochre, what ochre means when you put ochre on your body and um, all those cultural 
things that are important because you can't do language without culture. Um, it's, it educates our children, so someone that's working in the um, schools and has been um, teaching at, on NADOCs for many years, so I've been supporting that for... I've been doing stuff in schools for over 30 years, um, teaching my language and culture. And um, for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal children to learn together, that's really important. Um, our culture is worth surviving, if you like, and it's worth them um, having that chance to learn about our language and our culture. It's more relevant because it's on the country where they're living, makes more sense, and it's giving something back. It's giving something back to the community, but it's making these people stronger so that they can have a more informed choice down the track and understand what's happened in the past to how we can improve the future. So I guess what Diane's saying is that one of the things you can see through NAIDOC is that it's, whilst it can be seen as a political theme at the federal level, it, the impact on the local level is very much a cultural expression. And so I think that that's really important to understand yeah. as well. Yeah, and I think also it's like with NAIDOC, I mean, you know, I joke about it being, you know, all year, but in reality, you know, we shouldn't just sort of silo Indigenous stuff to one week and then not kind of have that celebration at any other time. So, um, you know, the, NADOC is obviously a really good sort of um, time where people can focus on uh, Indigenous perspectives and histories and cultures, but that's something that needs to be woven throughout the entire year throughout curriculum, throughout um, representation, the media. Um, it's not kind of just one week a year where Indigenous people are allowed to speak and have a voice. You know, it sort of has to be something that is um, peppered throughout the, the entire year. So, yeah, I think that it's also interesting thinking about how we don't just move towards having this one week <laughs> and that actually it's about integrating it into um, what Australia actually means as a country. It's breaking down barriers too. It's breaking down barriers and promoting understanding between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Um, and I think it, it's producing a more caring generation mm. um, and an understanding of what country and that means to us and how we have to look after country. Um, and if we can do that together, we're doing a lot of healing in mm. that country. Um, I have a little school out just called um, Ballymore, just outside of Dubbo, and I taught the students a, a little song. And they loved that song and they loved the dance that went with it. And they'd get up on the veranda and they'd sing me all the way out while I was walking out of the school, all the <laughs> way to my car. As I got in my car, they're singing me up the road, you know? <laughs> And that's Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal students, and they're real proud that they've learned an Aboriginal language and that they can sing to me and sing me all the way out of the schools. And for me, as an Aboriginal person, like, that's just fantastic to see that, that the, the students and the teachers are all singing in our language, um, something that wasn't allowed to be taught or spoken. So when I was a child, I wasn't allowed to speak my language. My uncle, my father weren't allowed to speak their language. Um, my grandmother and her 
her, um, the older people would speak in whispers behind the shed. My father knew words in isolation. My uncle could speak fluent uh, Radrian Nyampa language. Um, he was a six-year-old boy. He was very clever and he could speak three different languages, so English, Radrian Nyampa language. And um, the aunties and the grandmothers were so proud of him. They thought, wow, this boy is so clever. I'm talking about a six-year-old boy now. We have to send him to school. We can't keep him at home because he's too clever. We want him to learn more. And they sent him to school and he was at school and he got comfortable. He really liked the teachers and he, he enjoyed being there with the teachers and making friends and learning. And he dropped, it, dropped into speaking his language. That little boy got taken away for two years for speaking his language at school. So it's really good now that our students can speak their language without being taken away um, from their parents for two years because they were clever. Okay, so that sharing and letting our children be clever should be allowed. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's very, very deep and it leads me into the, um, the next little area that I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on, ladies, is that truth. And truth being one of the pillars of reconciliation and we're looking at the Aboriginal truth and voice. Mm. Now, as we said, we've been speaking the truth. I think it was Chief Shannon said we've been speaking the truth all of our lives. It's our truth. But in this modern age of the digital world, and we've seen it up there in your presentation, Dr Elizabeth, um, in relation to the accessibility and the, the amount of information that's now out there on the um, electronic universe and, and all of the all of the instas, mm. I'm not up to that. I I just learned how to use a phone. But, <laughs> but in the old days, and as you, somebody you know, and I'm going to be a little bit uh, terrible here, but the old forms were telegraph, telephone, teleblack. <laughs> <laughs> now. That's how the grapevine, we all know the grapevine. We've got that community grapevine. Now, how is, how is that looking at the voice and coming through language and truth going to work together, in, especially this year because it's the International Year of um, Indigenous Languages? How can we see that improving what we're trying to do through all of these programs and also our national focus in media and also in education? So Aboriginal groups right across the world are fighting really hard to have their languages and that not lost um, and to have the right to speak their language and practice their culture. We have um, nations from all around the world looking at what's happening in New South Wales with the um, Aboriginal language legislation um, and, and what's going to happen down the track with that. Um, so internationally, um, we are seen as, as um, be, that being important. So I know Canada Indians are looking at, Canadian Indians are looking at um, New South Wales. Um, I know the other states around Australia are looking at what's happening with New South Wales. Um, I think it'll be a, a great shame and a great loss for any of those Aboriginal nations around the world to lose their language and culture, for us not to be able to share it um, and be, an be able to go to another country and experience that, whether it be French or Scottish, Irish, um, Indonesian, Filipino, 
you know, any of those uh, language groups, or Chinese, Japanese, you know, I'd like to go, because I love my language and culture, but I'd like to go and experience other people's language and culture as well. And I'd hate to see any of those to be lost in the world. Um, so it's very important that we celebrate the languages around the world, but su support them in um, being able to have their language record, uh, recorded and not lost, and not have um, interference from um, English speakers take away the meaning behind those words that they use. Um, we have a lot of our la Aboriginal languages that have been lost throughout Australia. That's why it's very important now that we try to do something to save those languages. Because for Aboriginal people, without your identity, and language and culture is your identity, without that, you've got a whole generation of lost people that um, don't know where they belong. We've got a lot of suicide in our communities from young people and that, and it's, it, that's sad. That's really sad. We've had a couple of um, young fellas that we've lost this year through suicide and that, and um, I hope that we keep fighting so that we can keep them young people with us mm. and become strong people um, throughout our nation that can stand up and speak for our country for everybody. Mm. Yeah. I think for me, when I hear the theme, voice, treaty, truth, it goes right back mm. to when Australia was claimed as terra nullius, the great mm. lie, the great untruth. And that if we can't acknowledge that and what mm. that has continued to mean to us as Indigenous people, and that as a nation, we were the only country in the world that decided not to have a treaty with Aboriginal people, with Indigenous nations. And so that's the great lie. So we need to really acknowledge that. And sometimes that's a bit hard for people to acknowledge and um, to work out how that has created um, a society of um, genocide and acceptance of that genocide in this country and we need to break it down. Yeah. That's why the theme is so important this yeah. year. And I, I don't think you can look at Australia as being the lucky country when there's been so many um, deaths and that, mm. and, and that acknowledgement doesn't happen, mm. you know? Um, and when you've got people that say these things happened um, with Aboriginal people, and then Aboriginal people um, being made out to be liars, um, it's very sad. Um, it's like someone who's saying, I've been raped. Oh, no, you haven't. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Aboriginal people need to um, just have their voices listened to. Mm. It's just about respect, respecting those people so they don't keep carrying that sorry business along and then each generation takes that sorry business on. When Aboriginal people talk about things, and this is to do with language and culture, they no longer talk in the past. Once they start talking about and telling a story, they're telling it as if it's happening right now in front of you, 
right now. So that's when you'll see people start to weep and go through sorry business when they're telling you stuff because they're no longer talking in the past. If I had to talk about things that happened with my mother or my, my father or my uncle, it's taken me a very long time to be able to talk without crying over the things that happened with them and not jump into that present storytelling, um, the truth. Mm. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you're saying about sort of mm. social media and because I think it's a it's sort of a double-edged sword because I think that social media and the media we have seen sort of um, you know with platforms like Indigenous X on Twitter uh, also having more Indigenous journalists and Indigenous media um, you're being able to see perspectives from Indigenous people that you probably wouldn't have ever seen in the mainstream media or mm. even kind of just out there, you know, and I think social media has helped to sort of spread those perspectives, but obviously at the same time, um, you know, obviously it then allows anyone to have an opinion and so p opinions can turn into fact. Um, and so I think it is this double-edged sword, but I do see, I actually think it's more positive because we are seeing more Indigenous people having a voice and being able to tell their stories and have their perspectives out there. And I think that we're being able to sort of talk more about this truth-telling stuff, which uh, trying to get people to understand that the history of this country and colonisation is not just something in the past, mm. that it has created intergenerational trauma that every Indigenous person experiences, no matter how old or how young you are, because you have been passed on this from generations ago. And you see that with any community that has suffered trauma, you see that with Holocaust survivors. So it is an ingrained thing that gets passed down through generations. And I think that a lot of Australians are starting to get their head around what that means. And, you know, not just this whole rhetoric of, why don't they just get over it? Or, you know, everything's much better now. So, you know, just sort it out. So I think there is more of a conversation going on about how actually we do need to be really truthful about the mm. history. Mm. We need to be truthful about what's actually still happening today because this is continuing to get passed on through generations. Um, and so I think that's why the theme is really important because it, it kind of covers all of those very important facets of what mm. we really need to do as a country. And I think the treaty stuff is also, I guess, the mm. sort of us coming together um, in this whole process. Mm. I think the example for me of that is that uh, you looked at the removal of Aboriginal people from their country starting in 1883 uh, right through to the 19, 1970s where Aboriginal people were moved and placed onto reserves and missions. What we fail to acknowledge is we're not talking about one generation we're talking about between four to eight generations of people who were confined and controlled. And the only other example we've got of that internationally is when the Jews were placed into concentration mm. camps. And there we're talking about one generation of people. Mm. So when you yeah. say, get over it, you're talking about eight generations. How do you get over it? Mm. 
you're not talking about what happening to one generation. And you might say that in some states, like the Northern Territory, it's still going on. Mm. So how can people get over it? Uh, let's be real about the influence that we're talking about. We're not talking about it happening to one generation. We're talking about it ongoing since the arrival of the British here in Australia. Yeah, thank you. It, uh, those who aren't aware of that, it's a, um, uh, the White Australia policy. Have a look at that. But also moving, moving forward into that, and you've touched on a, another topic that I want to talk about in relation to the intervention in the Northern Territory, and we've got a federal government that suspends its own legislation, even the Anti-Discrimination Act, to bring another act to once again care for Aboriginal people mm. and protect Aboriginal people. So we love that word because it's been used so broadly of our protectors. We nearly got protected into extinction. Mm. Now, in relation to the media that was covering that and also take, take that back, I want to go back to you, Doctor. I want to get your study into this because you, you, you poked some memories for me and relate that protest in 1982 in the Commonwealth Games back to the protests there in Brisbane and about the Anti-Apartheid Act and the South African touring teams. I know a lot of our university students and some of the older people that might have been here helped us protest <laughs> and got locked up. And it's a, it's a mark of pride on their uh, resume that they got locked up protesting the anti-apartheid. So the, when back, everyone remember when un university used to be free? <laughs> you would have been in the protest. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I want to do is look at that media coverage in relation to the anti-apartheid protests and also connected to the Aboriginal um, mission to seek recognition of our human rights and also our citizenship rights and bring that forward to looking at social media and how it's going today. Have you looked in or would you be able to give us an appreciation of how that is happening in the media in, or in, does that relate to your study? Um, look, I think one of the benefits of social media is that um, anybody can participate, but as you said, one of the dangers also is that you get lots of different opinions. Um, one thing I was... Um, in terms of human rights and Aboriginal human rights, I, I, was, um, I was looking at the Facebook page for um, the, the, the um, Black Rising Facebook page, one thing I was, I was really surprised about was how much time and, and space they gave to things like um, Palestinians, um, the Rohingyas, um, just the willingness to not just look at Aboriginal human rights, but the global human rights of other people who are struggling at the moment as well. Um, and I think that's true when you look back historically through Aboriginal media. Um, they're not just looked at their own human rights and, and the need for um, new legislation or for it to be taken care of, um, but the, the willingness to actually look at other countries. And um, I think all one of the things that strikes me when I when I look at media across the the globe, indigenous media, is the, the similarities. The stories are the same. Um, if you look at indigenous people in Canada or you talk to people in New Zealand, or you talk to people in Australia, these stories are the same. You know, the um, the need for decolonisation, um, the way people have been treated. Um, so I think in terms of how 
we achieve human rights in Australia, we have to look globally as well. Um, I was really interested in what Auntie Diane was saying about um, other, other countries looking at what we're doing in terms of language. Um, when I was in New Zealand a couple of years ago, it really brought home to me how important the Treaty of Waitangi is mm. in that um, Maori people and, and you know, their, the protection of their languages, of their culture, is part of their constitution. The government has to make sure that there's, there are funds and time and resources given to ensure that their culture and their people are taken care of. And um, I think that we can learn from that. I think Australia... I was stunned the other day to find out that Australia is, I think, the only first world country that does not have a treaty with its First Nations people. So I think maybe that's the starting place. If we want to ensure that people have human rights and you know, are treated respectfully and we protect languages and culture, we have to start there with, the, with negotiating and talking about a treaty. Okay, thank you for that. We'll, we'll open the door very nicely, thank you very much, to the, um, a couple of topics that we'd know, I'd like to get your views on, ladies. In relation to that is treaty, um, do we need one? <laughs> Should we have one? What does it look like? And but also in relation to treaty, I'm I want to see if a treaty would help us in either constitutional recognition or just fixing the constitution of Australia as it up to stop it from being racist. Uh, you know, there's parts in the legislation that are clearly racist and they're still there. They're not used anymore, but they still exist in our constitution. But your thoughts on treaty? I'd like to. Um, see where you are with that because I know that it's a different experience for everybody and whether we have you know, 575 treaties <laughs> or one treaty with framework, it's, a, it's, a, it's as broad and as wide as our languages and our dialects. Mm. So I'd like to get some, some thoughts on treaty and what your, your perspective and take on treaty would be. Annie Lynn. <laughs> oh. I'm just thinking back to um, the way in which initial research was undertaken in this country and by whom. Uh, and that is that until most recently, all the research that was done about Aboriginal people was done by anthropologists. And so that meant that the research was undertaken to prove, firstly, that we didn't exist, uh, secondly, to prove that we were the missing link, and to prove that, that we had no real systems or structures in place. And therefore, that gave impetus or um, foundation to the Australian government not ever having to negotiate with us. That's a huge lie. So what that means is that the government then has not ever had to worry about creating a relationship with us whether it's at a national level or at a local level. So, not that I'm promoting a treaty, because I've seen how treaties have been misused with other Indigenous nations right across the world. I mean, we can count on all of our fingers and toes in this room how many treaties have been broken and how they've been misused to lie. But I'm rather thinking of it as creating some kind of national framework that can be used 
at a regional and local level, or sorry, at a, at a national, because uh, people still use the term tribe about us. And, and we're not a tribes. We don't have tribes, we have nations. They belong to broad geographical areas. We have clans and we have family groups. That's how we operate. So the term tribe means a loosely grouped form of people with no real structure. That's not us. We have nations, clans and family groups. And that's a set structure. So there actually is a framework in place. We've got it for negotiation. So let's use it. Let's have some real negotiation happening. I think Australia is more of a sort of complex, complicated case study, I guess, for having a treaty because uh, we're not similar, we're very different to New Zealand in the sense of we're made up of hundreds of different nations, we don't have one collective language and obviously that treaty was negotiated from the get-go and now things have progressed so much. We're in a very different um, phase right now. Also, the Treaty of Waitangi, um, the way in which Maori people actually drafted it, uh, non-Maori people misinterpreted what they had actually agreed to. So the agreement wasn't even... They weren't coming from the same place for the agreement. So. There's obviously, with any type of change, or there, there's always going to be issues and complexities. There's, nothing is ever perfect. Mm. And we've seen that with any change in history. But obviously, it's better to you know, try and get some sort of change in place than to not try at all, because we're worried that it's not going to be good enough. Um, but I think we have to be very cautious that, of course, these things are complicated, they're complex. We're seeing this right now when it comes to treaty um, making in Australia because we do have so many nations. So how do you negotiate a treaty when there are so many um, different people and groups with very different perspectives and issues and competing ideas? And so, um, you know, in Victoria currently they're negotiating a, um, they're going through a treaty process. And because of our history, it's a very complex um, process because not only have you got the issue of, okay, well, um, if you're a Victorian who's from regional Victoria but you live in Melbourne, what does that then mean in terms of you being represented? Are you represented based on where you live or based on... That where you come from, and then how are you represented in your place if you don't live in your home anymore? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's complicated and it, there's no sort of um, silver bullet answer to what actually is going to be the correct way, but I think that it's really heartening that there are processes now happening in Victoria, mm -hmm. in the Northern Territory, Queensland has been discussing having a process as well. And in my personal opinion, I think having it on that sort of state and territory basis is probably um, smart <laughs> in mm. because if you think of how complicated it is on that level, the complication on a national level is even more so. But I agree with you and I think that there needs to be a national framework though um, and there does need to be some type of agreement with the federal government mm. about how they're going to proceed moving forward in their relationship with Indigenous people. Mm. Because at the moment there is no mechanism in place 
to have Indigenous people on equal footing, um, coming from an equal place of partnership um, to create and co-design and make decisions based on uh, for issues that affect us. Mm. Um, and so that's where the whole voice conversation comes in. This is where the whole treaty conversation comes in. And I think that these are... Um, they're, they're not things that need to be dealt with in isolation. They're, you know, where we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and so I think that, you know, these are all just very important pieces of a puzzle that we need to work towards together uh, mm. as a country. Mm. Mm. You have to be careful that, you, you know, with something like that, that Aboriginal people have a genuine voice mm. in this. Um, that they're able to all have a say in it, not just um, that you get a, a small group together um, as a peak body or whatever, and that's the ticker box, mm. okay? We, we've, we've got a lot of that ticker box stuff, but we want genuine negotiations and talks. Um, and to be seen, see Aboriginal people as people in this country, mm. you know, First Nation people, so we would like to have that voice. And um, we've been slowly getting there, and you can see some changes, but we seem to take two steps forward and a, a couple, couple more back. Mm. So we need to have not the couple back, but to keep moving mm. forward. Mm. And it needs to yeah. be where we're actually um, selecting our spokesmen, not that the federal government picks the people they want to hear from who tell the story that they want to hear. Yeah, we've come through the uh, generation of media elders, I believe, and we're looking... <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Yes. <laughs> Oops. No, um, what, I, what, we're looking, what I'm looking to is progress that further and talk about... I, I, in my opinion, I think that we have one level of government too many in this country. Um, so whichever level you want to get rid of, I'd be happy to vote for. <laughs> as long as I've got the mate to take my garbage away, I'm happy. But... In relation to that and the buck passing, especially in education, where the Commonwealth and the states can't even agree who's responsible for, edu for education mm. and a standard curriculum, you know, it was only 40 years ago that we got the same railway lines nationally. Treaty seems to be a process that um, scares the crows away. Are we, are we looking at a turtle approach where they're just starting to poke their heads out to look around and see that there are black people in Australia, and you think treaty will make them snap back in, in relation to is it too much too quickly, mm. or are we going to look at, as we did for the um, yes vote, a 10, 12, 15 year process to educate the community, such as the reconciliation, million people walking on Harbour Bridge, mm. to start those processes. Do we need to slow down and say, hold your horses up, just because you've got a state government that's interested in treaty, should we hang back so the other states can catch up or the people are comfortable? Mm. I think that mm. it's... I think the fact that the process is happening, it's sort of... I think it's going to be a steep learning curve and that I think, particularly in those states and territories that are currently doing it, I think that they need to not shy away from the fact that it's going to be a very difficult process and there's going to be a lot of challenges, a lot of ups and downs and it will probably feel too hard and they'll just want to give up. And, you know, there'll be... I think also for our own mob, we have a lot of conversations that we need to have with each other too because, 
you know, we're, we're all suffering from um, hurt and trauma and, you know, identity issues and other um, issues within our community. So throughout this treaty process, we need to kind of confront some, some of those issues with each other as well. So I think that it is a very, it'll be a very big learning curve, but I think that they're kind of like the guinea pigs, I guess. And I think that it's good for them to actually be going through this so that we can figure out, okay, um, what works about the process, what doesn't work, what are some things that we can do better? And I think that, you know, we've kind of been going through this conversation for a long time. We've kind of got to just take the risk and just go for it and then hope for the best. <laughs> and, you know, just... It, the, the treaty doesn't have to be signed tomorrow. I think it's a process and that we just work together to make sure that it's the best process that we can possibly have. But I think that we can't just kind of keep waiting around for decades and decades until Australia is ready, because I don't think Australia will ever be ready. I think that they kind of have to, in a way, be forced into readiness, um, because any kind of change is scary, but it, if change isn't hard, it's not worth doing it. Oh, that's good. And I'll do a, that was getting really interesting, but I've got the big cut. We've, you've, got, you've had all the easy questions now from me. We're going to um, open the, open the um, discussion up to questioners from the floor. Um, we're going to have some people with some mics running around. That's right. If you can um, want to ask a question of the ladies, please do so. Um, and maybe possibly myself if you wanted to, but I don't know much. <laughs> it's clear you've got a, a, a very talented group of people here and congratulations on assembly. No, we're, we're happy for the men to have a voice. <laughs> <laughs> thank as you. As strong as we are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Clear. I appreciate that. <laughs> but thank you, ladies. You know, hopefully that we can continue this discussion further and we can get some questions from the floor now. So we'll open it up to the floor and we'll um, see how we go. Uh, I've got a question and it's um, in relation to music because it seems from... Well, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I wouldn't call myself a Triple J listener all the time, but I often listen to it and I am struck um, and... Um, pleased by the number of uh, Indigenous artists that are mm. now recognised right up there, um, you know, winning awards, um, getting national recognition, and their songs are protest music. It's mm. very powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just wondering what sort of role you see that in particular is playing in terms of educating young all young Australians about, you know, the the need to recognise the oppression of Aboriginal people um, and what sort of impacts having on, on young people in general today. Yeah. Uh, I think I think music's always been used as a forum for protest for all generations and all people. Mm. It's not specific to Indigenous people, um, but I think that I can see that now that we're getting um, greater acknowledgement of those voices in a really wider spectrum, then that's really exciting to me. Uh, one of the things I did this year was for uh, International Year of Indigenous Languages was um, the first five minutes of my lectures for all the units that I was responsible for and for my team, we had to provide um, some language or music in for all the students, and we're talking about mainly non-Indigenous students, 
and they were just amazed. <laughs> they were like, that really exists? Where do we get that from? And we were just able to show them such a wide spectrum of music that they were just unaware of, mm. and it was great. I think Triple J is probably the only <laughs> station that plays Indigenous music. I mean, in term, I can't think of other mainstream. Oh, maybe we'd play Jessica Malvoy, but um, <laughs> like the, you know, they're not playing, you know, your Baker Boy or your Briggs or yes. you know other, you know, artists that are having these protest songs. Mm. But I think it's good because you're seeing that music really infiltrate into that younger generation and people listening to it because they like the music and it's got a good message. Um, and it's just because they're an Australian artist and they want to support that artist. So I think that I'm hoping that that sort of just continues and it's not just sort of a moment in time at the moment. But um, yeah, I think that we have so many talented musicians out there that hopefully it will just continue on through generations because they have a really important voice. Does that mean I have to stop listening to Fox? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, any, any other questions? Surely there's some questions out there. Don't be frightened. Because we're willing to answer anything. <laughs> <laughs> if we can. The only silly question is an unasked one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, well, here we go. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the role of allies in speaking up and speaking up for change. Mm. And where do you draw the line between someone helping um, and, and just hijacking the message? I think if, if non-Aboriginal people hadn't... Uh, where we had the, what was it, 99% of Australia? 97. 97% of Australia vote for us to be recognised. Um, in 67. In 67. So, I mean, that showed that, that there was a big part of Australia that was willing to support Aboriginal people and see them as human beings. Mm. Before that, we was flora and fauna. Mm. So, you know, we could be killed on site or and massacred and stuff like that when we was flora and fauna. So up to 67 when we were recognised as people, human beings in our own country. Um, so to have 97% of Australians mm. say, oh yeah, they're human beings, mm. we should recognise that. That was a big thing. So you can't do nothing without everybody pulling mm. together to do stuff. We could go away and try to do stuff by yourself, but it wouldn't work. It wouldn't yeah. benefit anybody, mm. just ourselves. Mm. And then it depends who's going to listen to us. Yeah. yeah. And I think that we're only 3% of the population, so we obviously do need other Australians to be allies um, in the struggles and the issues that we face. Uh, I think, um, you know, for instance, I worked on the marriage equality campaign. Um, and I said to all of the people working on the marriage equality campaign that now it's their turn to return, like their time to return the favour, yeah. and that they all need to actually support Indigenous issues and campaign for us. Um, so I think that, you know, when it comes to being an ally, um, it really is sometimes about taking a back seat and um, ensuring that Indigenous people are being heard and having their voices elevated. Um, but it is also about non-Indigenous people 
ensuring that their voices are getting heard in the spaces that we either will not be listened to or that we're not being heard. So it is really important for non-Indigenous people to call out racism, to call out um, prejudice and, and to talk to their peers about Indigenous issues because, you know, sometimes that's who they're going to listen to. They're not going to listen to me or any of this mob. So, mm. you know, th there is a really important role for you to play in there. Um, but also it's about what can, if I'm an ally, what can I do to empower Indigenous people? Not to hijack the space, but to empower Indigenous people. Um, and I actually wrote a, a list recently that was published by Triple J. <laughs> Um, and it was about 10 ways to positively engage with Indigenous people and issues. And so you can Google that if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is really about um, supporting Indigenous organisations, you know, encouraging your workplaces to use Indigenous businesses for anything. That can be, you know, for catering, for graphic design, for, what you know... At, our mob have businesses in, in everything that you could possibly think of. So things like that, um, there, there's lots of ways in which you can engage with Indigenous people and issues um, and to do it in a way that's respectful and, as you said, not hijacking. Mm. And I think that we can tell when somebody's genuine. And I would rather see somebody make a genuine mistake than to, to then genuinely not even attempt. Yeah to be supportive or listen. Um, and that's the difference. Yeah. So most of the people I, at the university, most of the people I work with are, are non-Indigenous students. And it's the same question they say to me. But, you know, do I have the right to do something? Should I just step back? And I said, well, if you step back, then we're not able to move forward mm -hmm. because I need you to help educate the wider community. Yeah. So I'm educating you so you can get out there and have a genuine voice. So that's about you educating yourself so that you know what you're doing and you don't take over. We have run out of time for questions tonight. Oh, so there's I'll one, get one last right up the back. One. One more, Sorry, one more. you were, you were too far away. One more. Okay. <coughs> thanks, thanks for the recognition down there. <coughs> but uh, what I'd like to raise is that you know, we're talking about treaty. Now, what's it going to be based on? Is it going to be based on mm. sovereignty, Aboriginal sovereignty? And we're going to be talking from two equals? Or mm. do we continue the absurdity, absurd, you know, this absurdity that we've been through for 200 years now? Mm. You know, because, you know, if you, you know, if you can quote Voltaire, you know, who's a French, French philosopher, you know, you have people believe in absurdities, they'll commit atrocities. And that's been proven many, 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 many times over and over in this country. Mm. So, mm -hmm. so what? So, so how do we get these people to, sh to know that they're morally obligated mm -hmm. yeah. to, uh, to correct this uh, trespass mm -hmm. upon Aboriginal people? And that's, a, I think, where, uh, particularly on a federal level as well, where it's going to be really tricky because with a treaty, it is about one sovereign group recognising another so sovereign group. And as you were saying, because this country is built on terra nullius about uh, there being no one here, 
then what does that mean? Because we're not recognised as a sovereign group. So how are we going to negotiate this treaty if we're not even recognised as our own people no, to begin no. with? So I, I agree with what you're saying. It's going to be a really tricky process. And I don't know where they're coming at in terms of sovereignty in the... Um, state and territory processes. I don't know what the conversation is around sovereignty. Um, but also, I think you're right. It, it, that, that's the point. For, for a treaty, you've got to ensure that it's you're coming from equal positions and that it is a treaty which means that you're two equal parties that are having a negotiation. So we don't want it to turn into a situation where it's basically just the government saying, oh, let's just do this to shut them up, basically. Mm -hmm. So... And it's their agenda, not yeah. ours. Yeah, and, and it's not... Um, they're there, we know what's best for you. Yeah. Mm. OK, we need a genuine voice. We don't need that they're there, we know what's best for you because we know what's best for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So I think it will actually have to be a, a very... Um, There'll have to be sort of a, a break away from the way that we've been doing things for a really long time because the way that um, the government has sort of been built and operated on is this whole concept of we know what's best for you, we know yeah. the way that, you know, this is how we will fix things for you and there needs to be a complete change of perception in, yeah. how, in, in actually just completely pulling yeah. apart that mindset. Yeah. And that will be extremely difficult mm. to... And need, the need to get away from that mission manager mentality of we know what's best for you. The political parties need to realise that they're still in that mission manager mentality mm. Mm. towards so us and not giving us a genuine voice. We so need that genuine voice. the government is, if, it, if the federal government is to negotiate a treaty on a national level, they're going to actually have to accept and give up the fact that they will have to give things up. Mm. When you're having a treaty, it's not about just one side negotiating and having to give something up. They're going to have to give something up too and they're going to have to negotiate and they're probably... It's going to be things that they're not happy with or they don't want to do, but that's what a negotiation is. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're very used to giving things up. We're very used to having to negotiate mm -hmm. and compromise on things. So I think from their perspective, it's going to be very difficult to navigate uh, how, how will we do this in a genuine um, way. I was just going to say that um, tonight we've heard about um, that if change isn't difficult, it's not worth doing, mm. and that the temptation might be to give up, and that you can't. And as we draw the evening to a close, I just wanted to say that um, when we go upstairs, and I hope you'll join us for refreshments, we also really hope that you'll go into the Treasures Gallery because there will, you will see um, something from a man who didn't give up, and that is, of course, um, Edward Corky Marbo's papers, and in particular on display at the moment are uh, his speaking notes for the speech that would begin the Marbo land rights case. Uh, we always ha have some of Mr Marbo's papers on display in the oh. Treasures Gallery for that reason. 
you might also like to see the We Have Survived series of posters created in response to the bicentennial um, by the Boomerley Aboriginal Artists Cooperative. So um, I think you've inspired us um, to find ways that we can help and not hinder, to step forward instead of not stepping back. Um, and, uh, and really to kind of see how amazingly vibrant is the world of media that can push forward um, these messages. So, um, guests, I'm sure that you would like to join me in thanking Michael for facilitating. Um, and thanking our speakers tonight. So, Auntie Diane, Lynette, Shannon and Elizabeth. So, thank you. Upstairs and have some refreshments with us. So.